Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. From stock market fluctuations to ongoing supply chain shocks to rising interest rates and to inflation reaching a high watermark, there's a lot going on in the economy as we close out the second quarter. Businesses should not judge what may happen with the recession based on what happened to the one that we lived with in the not too distant past. My recommendation would be to put early warning systems in place, be attentive and attuned to incoming data. Craig Stromberg and Zane Siddiqui from PwC Intelligence are back and they have updates on the economy and global outlook that you'll not want to miss, particularly as calendar year and companies are just starting to close the books on the second quarter of 2022 and thinking through updates to disclosures, reserves, impairment assessments, and more. The overall economy is part of thinking all this through. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Zane, Craig, welcome back for our discussion of all that is going on at the end of the second quarter. And when I say all, I probably should say all that we can talk about in 45 minutes, because (laughs) I think all that is going on would probably take 45 hours. So maybe just to start things off to level set. I I know there's a lot going on from a geopolitical perspective. So let's start there and then we can come back to some of the things more specific to the U.S., what's going on in the U.S. Uh, But let's start with what geopolitical shifts we're starting to see and then how those are impacting the economy. Thanks, Heather. And as always, thanks for having us back. So I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption that loyal listeners have kept track of this ongoing geopolitical conversation we've been having for the last two years. So there's not a lot of need to go back and explain. But I think specifically getting to your question and starting to make linkages between geopolitics and the economy, one of the shifts that's underway is that if you think back to the start of the global response to Ukraine, it seemed like with a couple of exceptions, there was going to be very broad support for cutting off Russia and stopping trade with it. What has come into greater clarity since, which is having an absolute impact on trade and the way the trade is being thought about in world capitals, is that that perception is really not so black and white. So the US and Europe and other parts of the world, but especially the US and Europe and Canada, they are very much hand in hand in thinking about how they should be sanctioning and isolating Russia from the world economy. Much of the rest of the world, though, especially Asia, to include India, China, Japan, you know, Indonesia, large economies all across Asia and in Africa, they are not on board with that. And while they haven't been broadcasting it as loudly and they haven't been very public about it, they continue some means of measures of trade with Russia. And so what this means is that the macroeconomic impacts, which Zane can talk about, of the Ukraine conflict are reverberating, but it is also causing this divergence between different parts of the world that 90 or 100 days ago saw they thought they sort of saw things very similarly, And it's become apparent that that's not the case. And I think that leads into something else we're seeing, is that this 
pragmatism, which is what it is, right? The Ukraine situation looks very different depending upon where you are in the world and what your history has been and what your interests are. And part of what we're seeing is that there is increasingly a divergence on a lot of issues between the Indo-Pacific countries individually and as a group and the United States and Europe. And this is in part because the Indo-Pacific is where it's at in terms of trade, dynamism, foreign investment, and they are increasingly acting in the best interests of what they need for commerce, for stability, for geopolitical linkages. And they're coming at this with a very pragmatic point of view. So despite the tension, there's some pragmatism that you're seeing in that relationship too, but a great deal of uncertainty about how that's going to carry forward. And all of these three things that we're talking about here, you know, have direct corollaries on the macroeconomic side. So Zane, do you want to chime in and talking about the macroeconomics? And then I have a few follow-up questions for Craig. Sure. Thanks very much for having me, uh, Heather. Uh, I think as Craig mentioned, uh, the global geopolitical situation is clearly in a flux. Uh, global economic situation remains in a state of flux as well. Uh, we still don't quite know what the ultimate impact uh, of Russia-Ukraine will be on global growth. Uh, but what we do know is that the crisis is a positive for inflation. It's pushing up inflation and negative for growth. Uh, we are facing heightened risk of global stagflation. Uh, global central banks, including the Euro European Central Bank, as President Christine Lagarde uh, recently announced, are responding to this by increasing rates and adopting a very restrictive stance. We have obviously seen that uh, here at home with the Federal Reserve. Uh, this will probably lead to a further reduction in global demand. But at the same time, we don't expect input prices to come down as fast. If you look at the Russian economy, uh, it's about 1.3% of the global GDP, but it punches well above its weight when it comes to the commodity markets. Uh, when you take the Russian or even Ukrainian supply off the global markets through boycotts or sanctions or disruptions, uh, someone would have to produce more to rebalance the market. But that's not something which can happen overnight. Uh, when you look at the supply curve of most of these commodities, it tends to be very inelastic, slow to response, uh, tends to have a long capex cycle. So even when someone would decide to produce more, it would take time for that to result in actual incremental supply available uh, to the global market. So this is a situation where we think this high price environment won't go away anytime soon, but it's coming at a point when global demand uh, is falling quite rapidly, and it's something which will continue to put a lot of pressure on margins over the next several quarters. All right. You guys gave us a lot to think about here. And, I, you know, maybe rewinding, uh, Craig, to a few of the things you mentioned, definitely thought it was interesting what you shared on the sanctions. And it's, you know, you still have strong sanctions, as you said, coming from part of the world, but not so much from another part of the world. And so in a case like this where, you know, Russia does have other alternatives, it feels like then the sanctions really can't be effective. And at some point then does the U.S. and Europe say, okay, well, this is not a way that we can really pressure Russia anymore. So it's, it's a good question. And Zane should weigh in too. I, I think it has been effective. 
Um, we have not seen, again, if you think back to the beginning of the Russia conversation more than 100 days ago, what we thought we might see by now was a completely crippled economy in mm -hmm. Russia. Mm -hmm. Bare store shelves, even threatening the level of stability on the street. And we're not seeing that, right? In most places, you can still get most of what you need you know, as a consumer in Russia. It may not be in the volume that you want or the freshness that you want or the quantity you want, or certainly not the price that you want, but you can probably get it. There is absolutely, though, huge damage that is being done to the Russian economy. And the Russian economy is being cut off from vast swaths of the G20. You know, it is not a small thing to lose access to and stop being a trading partner with the European countries and the United States and Canada, right? Those are markets that you want and need as part of your growth. And Russia no longer can rely on them. So they are stable and more stable than we thought they were, but they're absolutely hurting. And what is being done from them from a sanctions point of view will continue to do some damage to them. I think one of the other things that's interesting to note here is that part of what companies are probably going to start to think about soon is, are the sanction regimes going to last if there's a change in leadership on Capitol Hill this year? And from what we've heard from many of our colleagues that watch this closely, their read is that the pressure is likely to continue. Even if there are changes in leadership, the U.S. point of view on this overall is probably not going to change. So the sanctions compliance that companies have to think about now probably won't be any different. I think while the economy in Russia has been less damaged than it might have been, they're still on the outs. And I think what they have to start to think about are all the follow-on effects, the loss of access to technology, the loss of access to critical investment, the lock of access to people that might have come to Russia and worked from countries that are now sanctioning it. All of those things will damage the Russian economy over time. They'll, Russian, they'll damage Russian dynamism, Russian innovation. So they're keeping afloat far better than we thought because a lot of the world is still in a trading relationship with them. But that doesn't mean they're in a good spot. Zane? I would agree with Craig. Uh there has been some long-term damage which has been inflicted on the Russian economy. Uh, it is seeing a lot of separation activity. We know that corporations uh, are looking to divest from Russia now. They expect sanctions to remain in place for the long term. But having said that, and this comes back to the previous point that I made, Russia relies on key commodity exports like gas and energy. It's still able to export gas uh, and energy uh, to alternative buyers in Asia. Uh, we have heard of various countries who have not decided to adhere to the sanctions which have been imposed by the West. So Russia is still uh, uh, earning uh, revenue through exports. It's uh, something which it's, it's using to prop up uh, the value of the ruble, and it has done quite well. Uh, so, over the, so and, and much of the long-term damage on the Russian economy is going to trickle in slowly, and we will uh, see that the potential GDP growth rate of the Russian economy would come down moving forward. But at the same time, uh, we haven't completely crippled the Russian economy. And that's mainly because 
uh, we still have sanctions uh, which give clear carve out to the energy and gas sector of the Russian economy, and Russia is still able to sell its uh, commodity exports to uh, buyers in Asia and other parts of the world. So on the note of commodities, maybe there's another aspect of this that we should talk about, which is the disruption to wheat and the, you know, if we take a step back, I think between Ukraine and Russia is huge exporter of wheat throughout the world. And I think, Craig, you may have even talked before about particularly for countries in Africa and otherwise, this could have a very large impact. And we do see that the war is continuing to disrupt life in Ukraine. And it's middle of summer. It's not a great time from a crops perspective. So, Craig, how do you think about that as we look at food prices and otherwise? I mean, this isn't really a sanctions issue. This is just more more broadly that, you know, there's a supply issue. There's absolutely a supply issue. I think it's become something that companies and countries are dealing with actively, which does not mean that it's easy to come up with substitutions. I think the key concern is shifting from this year to oncoming years. In other words, the question is, if one of two things happens, right, if Russia essentially occupies large parts of Ukraine in the east of the country, which is really the breadbasket for much of the world. Over the long term, what does that mean for future exports, for future harvests later in 2022 and in 2023? And the second one is what damage has been done to that region? Mm -hmm. Enormous amounts of infrastructure go in you know, to maintaining farming and agriculture, you know, energy, water, sewage, you know, road infrastructure, supplies out, supplies in, port infrastructure, all sorts of things need to be in place in order for that food to flow out of country and in country. And right now, that infrastructure is under attack in Ukraine. And I don't think we're going to have a very good idea as to how much of it is going to be usable to continue to feed the rest of the world until after things are done. And we don't know when things are going to be done. So I think we are going to potentially see a transference of the concern about food supply chain from something that is just a passing storm to something that we may have ongoing concerns about for the next couple of years. But we are not going to be able to determine that until things calm down and we can get a real assessment of Who's going to literally be in charge of the farmland itself? And is that farmland going to be able to generate anything and move its product out of Ukraine? All right. So definitely a lot to think about there. So, Craig, let me shift gears and ask about another uh, topic that I think was the genesis for this entire discussion between us and you, which was COVID and the pandemic, because, uh, you know, we, we started uh, interviewing you back in 2020 talking about the impacts of COVID. Now, clearly, COVID is not top of mind. It's not top of the newspapers anymore. And yet, you know, there's still the impact from it. So how does this now more silent pandemic impact what's going on more broadly from a global perspective? So unfortunately, what I would have loved would have been for the governments of the world and the corporations of the world, right, to try and answer your question without being distracted by a major regional war, 
mm-hmm. which seems to be dominating all other decision making. So I think part of the hopes had been that coming into 2022, much of the geopolitical political cooperation that, as we have talked about in the past, that we failed to see, maybe we would see a reversal of that. And countries and regions would be better about instituting more protections for regions of the world that haven't had as much exposure to vaccines, that need stronger public health. And as you cite in your examples, and as Zane knows better than I do, in the middle of all of this macroeconomic and geopolitical craziness, COVID has become this very destructive wild card where without warning, it can shut down ports that need to be open. Mm-hmm. It can take down entire workforces, isolate and completely stall trucking fleets years after you know we thought that this might be finally gone. Mm-hmm. So all of this disequilibrium is going to continue to happen because COVID is more of a wild card and because it may continue to morph. And part of what the scientific community globally is trying to figure out now is, as we think about, even though we're just getting into summer, right, mm-hmm. they're already starting to think about how do we prepare global populations for the winter surges, mm-hmm. which will come. And one of the debates they're having is, what version of the vaccine do we protect people with? Do we do it with COVID prime that we knew about? Do we do it with Omicron variants? Do we plan for other variants? And so all of this means that that thing, which is such an anathema to CFOs, uncertainty, is going to be a continued part of the landscape because even if things geopolitically and macroeconomically become a little more equalized, COVID is going to continue to be this chaotic actor that is going to have, at any point, the ability to take Marseille or Long Beach or, Mm -hmm. you know, Beijing off the board as an effective port, you know, for weeks at a time in ways that are very difficult for businesses to predict. So then if we think about supply chain, and I know you touched on this before, if I'm a CFO, I'm looking you know, ahead and I'm trying to plan, and you, you mentioned CFOs don't like uncertainty too much, how are you seeing companies plan? Are they looking for alternative sources? Are they doubling up sources? Or is it just trying to stay on top of things? So I, I will say that I am beginning to see more of a willingness of corporations to have very uncomfortable conversations with within their C-suites and within their boards about what do these geopolitical shifts really mean? And are we going to have to be the ones, right, to have to make some hard decisions, right? CEOs come and CEOs go and board members come and board members go, but somebody gets stuck like Mm -hmm. in musical chairs being the one that has to make the hard decisions. And we're entering a period where especially the geopolitical attention and its reverberations on political and corporate decision makings about supply chains, not economic, right? Macroeconomics is its own thing, but there are geopolitical decisions that are being made about supply chain too. Like, should we de-risk supply chain by forcing companies out of markets that we may not either see eye to eye with 
or that we need more production that is closer to shore so that we can have, theoretically, more stable supply chains. Those are years-long conversations. They are beginning. And as Zane and I talk to clients, they're not making decisions yet, but they are starting to have a conversation repeatedly, asking different types of probing questions about what's possible, what's probable, and what the effects of these things would be on their operations. We're having more of those conversations and hearing more of that than we ever did before. And I think what that means is that to some level, however it's happened, many businesses have come to accept that disequilibrium is going to be the de facto norm in the operating environment for some time to come. And they have to be willing to make the hard decisions to potentially shift very costly operational elements like supply chain if they're going to have stability and not be caught off guard again. So, Craig, what's interesting on that is we've talked before about maybe a broader, I'll call it movement towards onshoring from a government perspective. So are there going to be incentives or otherwise for maybe some critical um you know, I'll call it critical infrastructure. It's not the right word, but critical supplies, critical products to be brought into production in the U.S. But what you're describing now is actually individual companies making those decisions versus a, like a broader mandate. Do you see any movement on that side in terms of some of these different types of products? Or we, is that also sort of, I'll call it silent for now, maybe not dead, but silent for now? I don't think it's, it's, it's dead or silent. And I also don't know that, you know, to be clear, I see that we see companies making a lot of shifts, but we do oh, see them starting about to chefs. talk about it. <laughs> okay. Um, and I that that I think that may sound to listeners like a very unimportant distinction, but given that a lot of the clients that we talk to have been reactive for a long time, the fact that they're now thinking proactively, I don't think this is a small thing. Because that's an incredibly difficult business decision and a very costly one. And the fact that they're beginning to sort of try to figure out how to, be, how to have the argument with the board and with the investors, it shows that they're preparing for possibilities, not probabilities. And that, that's a good thing. I think the other thing they're looking for, though, is the precise answer to your question, which is, if we shift... Where are we going to shift to and who's mm -hmm. going to make this easier for us, whether that's from a tax point of view, a financing point of view, a rebate point of view. And right now, we're not seeing a lot of that. And this is part of what I think is putting a limit on some of the real potential future supply chain shifts. And Zane could should address this after me because I think he may have a far better opinion. But... If there isn't someplace else to go, that's going to limit your ability to shift out of certain locations in non-market economies, no matter how much you want to, no matter how much COVID is acting as a chaos actor, because either it's going to be difficult for you to shift to another foreign market because the infrastructure is less, the skilled talent pool is smaller, and a lot of it is already spoken for, or to shift back to the United States because costing here is cost of building factories here is expensive. 
And the government is not necessarily being as clear, potentially, or as open with its pocketbook as you might like. And that's because of all of these really heavy macroeconomic storm clouds over Washington and Wall Street that Zane was talking about. In that kind of an environment, Washington is not going to open the checkbook. It's just they're, they're too concerned about the economy to say, yep, everybody gets a check. Everybody gets near short. Everybody gets new funding for marketing and market concentration back here in the U.S. It's just too much of an uncertain scenario. So, Zane, I actually was going to go to you next with talking about the R word, but maybe if you want to weigh in first on what Craig was just talking about, and then we can move to the broader discussion of the U.S. economy. Sure. So aside from what the Washington's focus is and whether they have the resources to invest in reshoring, uh, I, I do think that companies need to see whether securing and steadying their supply chain is a good business practice. I certainly think it is, given what we have gone through over the last two years and what we will continue to go through in the, over the next few years, because there are structural challenges which are emerging within supply chains. Um, Coming back to the conversation about reshoring or, or localization, it is incredibly difficult for businesses to localize their supply chain. It is a long-term shift because that means businesses would have to face the adjustment costs of coming back to the U.S. They would need to invest in automation, labor-saving technology, and eventually upskill the existing labor that they have. So this is a more medium to a long-term journey that they will face. And then in some sectors, complete localization may not be viable. Uh, I think of the technology sector where most of the supply chains are still highly plugged into Asia Pacific. In semi, you cannot in localize your entire supply chain. Uh, but having said that, what companies should think about doing is localizing some parts of their supply chain, maybe ones which are more strategic in nature, uh, identify those uh, localized back end, front end of the production processes to reduce uh, their exposure to global logistics. Uh, and we are seeing companies uh, move in that direction because they do not expect uh, a return to pre-COVID freight rates or uh, supplier delivery times. Uh, so you are seeing a, a lot of contemplation there and you are seeing some action there, but it's something which will take them time to come to grips with because it, in it includes a lot of adjustment costs that they need to uh, account for. So one more question on this topic before we go to the broader topic. And we've been spending a lot of time on the podcast talking about ESG and the SEC's proposal and, you know, companies and how they're really looking at making changes to reduce emissions, to improve their social programs or otherwise. And when I think about reshoring and I think about less shipping costs and less emissions inherently, you know, we, we do see little case studies of companies that have moved because they want to reduce emissions or they want to bring work to their local economy or whatever the case may be. Is that still anecdotal or are you starting to see that more specifically factor into some of these conversations? I would say from what I'm seeing, part of the complication that I'm seeing in those conversations is about the high degree of polarization that exists in the U.S. at the moment. 
And what that means is that if you are thinking about moving a factory or moving operations, you need to think about what the social blowback might be of where you decide to relocate. And there are multiple front page examples of this that have happened in the last four or five months where good decision-making went in about where to locate manufacturing from a corporate point of view and from an economic point of view. But all of a sudden, very difficult questions in terms of an ESSG mm-hmm. you know, point of view were being asked of the company by its consumers and by others in the marketplace in general about what did it mean? What was the message that was intended by the company when they decided to invest in a location that X in the eyes of some people. And so this intense polarization that is happening in the U S and will very likely continue to happen is going to make an additional layer of complexity for companies to have to think about. And as we've talked in the past, when one of these issues comes up that the CEO doesn't know what to do with, they almost always throw it in the CFO. Yes. So now on top of everything else that the CFO has to do, they're going to have to figure out how do I help make corporate investment decision-making that is going to have minimal social blowback and yet help the firm maximize its revenue. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be much more of a challenge for businesses as they think about switching locations or manufacturing. Yeah, because those are sometimes mutually exclusive things. Not always, but sometimes. So definitely Absolutely. a lot a lot to balance. And as that you were talking, Craig, it's almost like I can picture these layers of, you know, Russia-Ukraine conflict, pandemic, ESG, like there's and you know, all these layers of things that are now factoring into all decision making. And I guess saying that all sort of leads to then this question, and you, I've asked you it before are we about to see a recession? Is that imminent? So um, let me just state up front, um, we do not have a recession in our baseline at this time, at least for this year. We do think that the risk of a recession is substantially higher next year because monetary policy uh, works with a lag. Uh, I can talk about this a bit more, but we do expect U.S. growth to slow down quite significantly by the year end to roughly 1% for the full year, uh, which is a significant step down from above 5% last year. Um, And I've discussed this before, but we are looking at four factors specifically. The first is higher inflation. Uh, Consumer balance sheets are still in fairly good shape, uh, but higher inflation is eroding consumer purchasing power. Uh, Real wages are still negative. Uh, The second is higher rates as a result of higher inflation, uh, which is already reducing demand in more interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. Uh, The third is tighter financial conditions, which is leading to uh, weaker equity prices and higher spreads. And then finally, a stronger dollar, which will continue to be a drag on U.S. exports in coming months. Uh, These factors, we think, uh, mean that the U.S. growth will remain below trend over the next few months. Uh, But I say that with some trepidation. Uh, as we sit here, there are more things that can go wrong with the U.S. economy than right. And recession risks are certainly more elevated than usual. 
All right. So then let's talk about different pieces of that. Maybe starting with the labor market, because I don't think you can look at the news without seeing, you know, shortage of summer labor and, you know, shortage. There's still issues from the great resignation and otherwise. And I was kidding with my children, but not exactly kidding that they're making more money at their summer part-time jobs than I did, you know, when I started a staff accountant at the firm, which something just even with inflation, inflation, like the little inflation that we've seen, uh, still something just seems wrong with that. So if we think about labor specifically, and particularly skilled labor, not necessarily the summer job type of labor, how does that factor into this broader conversation? So that's a really good question. Look, the labor market, especially for skilled labor, is incredibly tight. Uh, if you look at job openings and quit rates, they are still historically high. Uh, there are still two jobs for every one unemployed worker, so there's clearly a lot of upward pressure on nominal wages. Uh, but we are now seeing some signs um, of softening in the labor market. Both job openings and quit rates have fallen in recent months. Uh, this has happened across sectors, uh, including skilled and for uh, unskilled labor. Uh, retail sector last month, for example, showed a net job loss. And anecdotally, if you're following LinkedIn, we are also seeing many layoffs across technology companies. Uh, some of this softening in labor market is expected and might I say desirable to bring down inflation. Um, for the Fed to bring inflation under control, it really needs to bring down wage growth. Uh, the current pace of wage growth is somewhere around 6%. We think it needs to be around 4 4.5% to be consistent with the Fed's long-term goals. Uh, my perspective is that the Fed will struggle to accomplish this uh, without meaningfully lowering labor demand or potentially increasing unemployment. Uh, I'm not sure how it gets done uh, otherwise. Um, so we expect labor demand to weaken uh, in coming months. That should bring down wage growth slightly. Uh, but having said that, Heather, uh, one thing that I want to emphasize is that that doesn't mean that labor supply pressures won't persist. Uh, businesses will continue to face a skills shortage because we are just not producing enough graduates. Immigration levels have also fallen in recent years. Um, we will also, con we are also going uh, through a peak demographic drag where the share of the 65 and above population will grow um, quite rapidly. So even if wage growth uh, slows slightly, it will be mainly driven by lower uh, labor demand. The labor supply shortages uh, will uh, will continue to put upward pressure uh, on wages, and it's something which will continue to be a source of margin pressure for many for many of the companies in coming years. All right. And then another factor as we just look more broadly at what's going on in the U.S. is obviously we have a midterm election that's going to be coming up in November. And how do we see, if at all, that factoring into some of the these economic questions, supply chain, trade, otherwise? And probably ask both of you this question, but seeing you can go first. I will let Craig take Craig, this go first. <laughs> so... I think that, well, I don't think trade with Russia and the U.S.'s policies towards it are likely to change if there's significant shifts on the Hill. Trade overall is an open question. You might see much more aggressive push for different types of trade policy 
from the the Republicans, where again we're trying to keep an even keel. The administration is trying to work very hard behind the scenes to make things happen. Different leadership in in Congress may feel that that should be more visible, or be going at a different pace. I also think that we should keep in mind that when we talked at the very beginning of the show about how Asia and the Indo-Pacific are looking at the United States very differently and making their own decisions in a certain way now, a lot of that, not all of it, goes back to the U.S.'s withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership in 2017. And action, a trade action, which was seen as a disaster in a lot of places, in a lot of U.S. trading partners in the Pacific, because they wanted us to be involved in that way. And you may you may see in the next year, countries beginning to apply for the TPP's follow-on, the CPTPP, and other countries too, leaving the U.S. sort of out in the cold when it comes to new sort of trade agreements in the Pacific, the region that really matters in terms of growth. I don't know that having a divergence of power in Washington is going to help policymakers get around that. And that means that for companies that are trading in Asia, they're going to have to continue to rely on their best judgment of how to do deals and investments and M&A in those markets, because there's probably not going to be a lot of uniformity coming out of Washington on it anytime soon. All right. So definitely sounds like a topic we will still be talking about when we record an update in the third quarter. So let me go back then, Zane, to something that you mentioned, which was the Fed. And I know there's been a lot of eyes on the Fed's activity recently. And, you know, we've seen a lot of stock market turbulence. We've seen the questions about inflation. And obviously, we've seen some action from the Fed in terms of uh, increasing the benchmark rate. So how do you put all this together and what, how does the Fed factor into what's going on more broadly economically? I think the best way to understand this is we need to recognize uh, that regardless of what measure we use, the U.S. economy is the furthest away from the Fed's targets that it has been at any point in the last 40 years. Inflation uh, remains at a 40-year high labor market remains historically tight, as we discussed. Uh, we think this is something which will continue to necessitate uh, a more aggressive response from the Fed. Uh, we do expect a 75 pip uh, hike in the next FOMC meeting on July 26th, and then followed by a 50 point hike in September and 25 point hikes in November, uh, November and December. Uh, this is a lot of tightening up front, uh, especially when, as we mentioned, that the economy is showing signs of slowing. This will leave the Fed, I'm afraid, with a very narrow path to a soft landing. They would need to thread a needle. And it's partly why we think that the risk of a recession uh, is very high next year. Um, now, Chair Powell and Fed officials have been very adamant in saying that the Fed uh, is not trying to induce a recession. Uh, I am not too sure. Uh, I think if there's one thing uh, that the recent 75 BIP increase in June tells me is that the Fed has its mind made up. They are willing to risk a hard landing to bring inflation down. And one thing which I uh, also want to discuss here is um, I think one reason why I think that the Fed won't 
blink and it will continue to have its foot on the accelerator is uh, if they blink and don't get inflation under control, inflation may become more entrenched and they may have to do a lot more later. Uh, their credibility as a central bank is at stake. Uh, this is what happened in 60s uh, and also in 70s, if you recall, when Fed was very slow to respond. What happened then was uh, inflation got out of hand and Paul Volcker had to come in, raise rates very aggressively and induce a demand recession. Um, I think the Fed wants to avoid that outcome and do what's necessary in the near term. And they won't have uh, so they won't have to do more uh, on a more long term basis. So, Zane, did I do my math right that between the rate increases we've already had this year and the ones you just talked about, that's 3% in 2022? Is it more than that? I, I lost track of all the math there. I think the policy rate, the Fed funds rate, is going to reach uh, 3.25 or up, could reach up to 3.50% uh, uh, by the year end. All right. So it's definitely a lot to think about. So then if I take a step back and say with all of these different factors, and I, I mentioned earlier, these layers, if I'm a CFO thinking about this and thinking about, you know, looking ahead to the second half of the year and how to best position my company, what recommendations are you, you, you guys making as you're talking to clients? My a recommendation would be to put early warning systems in place. Be attentive and attuned to incoming data. Uh, there will be plenty of tea, read, uh, tea leaves to read before the recession happens. Um, understand what the potential uh, recession and recovery curves may look like for your sector. I know many companies have adopted uh, scenario planning or stress tests like the financial sector. Um, there are many companies who do three scenarios, for example. We would advise do four scenarios and have a dialogue around the scenarios that you have. We find that when most companies do two, uh, three scenarios, they choose the one in the middle. Um, and then we also know that based on past recession sectors uh, that tend to be more acyclical do well. They tend to outperform the broader economy here. I'm thinking of healthcare and staples, uh, consumer discretionary in an industrial sector obviously leads the cycle and they tend to post sharper drops. Um, the more fascinating sector for me is technology because it underperformed uh, in both 2001 and 2007 recession, but did incredibly well during the recent COVID recession. Mm -hmm. uh, but pay attention to the health of your end user. If your end users are businesses, find how healthy their fundamentals are, how their spending behavior has changed in the past cycles. Same for if your end user is a consumer, are they low income or how income? Because that will what would dictate how the potential recession and recovery curves may look like for your uh, business. All right, Craig, anything to add there? So Zane, Zane's answer is going to be much better than mine. I only have two things, and one of them is very tactical, which is when it comes to the recession, businesses should not judge what may happen with the recession based on what happened to the one that we lived with in the not-too-distant past, right? The recency bias of the last recession should not accompany the projections of this one. In other words... Every recession is different, right? And so business executives by this point have probably lived through enough of them that they've got some variety, but they need to prepare for all kinds of recessions that might hit the market, including those 
which they may have to go convince the board and their customers there is a recession, even though you don't think there is. And therefore, it requires a different sort of corporate decision making. And they need to start thinking about what a conversation would be like if the consumers simply don't buy that there's a recession, but there is, and it begins to hit corporate profits and revenue in a certain way. How do you explain that to the marketplace? I think the second one, which is a little more strategic, is using some of the techniques that Zane outlined to continue to prepare for a geopolitical environment, which is going to be very unsettled for some time to come, despite the best efforts of a lot of countries and companies to get it to more of a stable status. Where we are at in terms of unpredictability and understanding the chaotic actions and actors that are at play in the market is essential. And if companies haven't done, and I'm assuming when I come on the podcast and we are so lucky to be able to do that, that whoever is listening to your podcast does exactly what Zane and I do, which is we listen to you and whatever you tell us to do, we do. So let's just make the assumption that they, I listen, love that. they listen going. to you, you know, in the last one, right? And when, when we told them, might not be a bad idea for you to do sort of a look back and a lessons learned on how not just mm-hmm. you did, but how did your sector do? Like who adapted well and who didn't adapt well? It is not too late to do that. Sitting here in summer, take some summer day and get your C-suite somewhere offsite and have someone really challenge you about what happened. Because the lessons that you learned to be resilient and agile enough to get through COVID, you're gonna need to know what those are in order to get through the next couple of years. And so don't lose all the learning that is potentially on the table. Because by the time that fall and winter come around, we're gonna start forgetting. Companies are gonna start forgetting. So don't lose it, collect it now. I think one thing which Heather, I will add here is uh, have a early look at the cost management. But what we don't want is to create a self-fulfilling prophecy where there is all of a sudden a negative mindset in the management team and executives start taking their foot off the accelerator. Try to be nimble. um, Try to free up some cash. Have a preference for liquidity that will allow most of these companies to be flexible, especially during the downturn, and especially if they want to adopt a more opportunistic or acquisitive approach uh, during that downturn. Um, And I think that's something uh, which would uh, be, which would bode awfully well um, how most of these companies emerge from the recession. All right. Both definitely very helpful. Thank you for that. Now, I do have a final question, and I feel like most of the topics when I bring the two of you on are, I don't want to go so far as say doom and gloom, but perhaps not the most, the most positive, but this is something I saw yesterday that I did think could be considered a positive, maybe not for everyone, not clothing manufacturers, but Craig, I was noticing, so we're recording this on June 27th and apparently the G7 is meeting right now. So I, I'm sure you're paying attention to this. And I noticed that they had time yesterday for all those G7 leaders to declare the end of the necktie. So just curious if they have all this time to be spending on this type of um, sartorial choice. Do you think it's a good sign that, you know, they're working well together and that they, they do have a few moments from, for something a little lighter? 
it's a good question. I, I, I think they genuinely do like one another. In particular, this particular leadership set of the G7. You know, the way these meetings work is that they take months of advanced diplomatic prep work so that by the time the principals walk in the room, they sort of know what's going to happen. If I had to take a wild guess, and if I'm wrong about this, I hope our colleagues to the north will forgive me, where this necktie idea started, it's probably with Trudeau. Um, just because he's the kind of guy that can get away with that because he's so cool. <laughs> well, it's a compliment, so they can't I, be too upset. <laughs> but I, but I, on the other hand, right, I, I think if you look at some of the real tenseness that has been in the G20 and the G7 and the G8 in recent years, I don't think it's a bad thing or a bad signal to the market that there is some levity. It means that they are comfortable enough with one another that they can probably have the difficult conversations that need to happen including about doing things like trying to do better to control COVID because they get along well enough that they can put such an item on the agenda. And that that's a good thing for business. Well, and in seriousness, the, part of the reason I brought the question up is the photo I saw completely caught my eye before I even read the headline because they did look more light. The body language was good, the way they were all standing together. And I, I do think to the point you made that there is some level of, I'll say the word comfort in knowing that they can at some level get along. And I, I do hope that's positive for all of us. And again, had to bring this up at the end, considering all the, the much heavier topics we were talking about. So both, thank you so much as always. Really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. That does it for today. Join me back here next week for new podcast episodes. On Tuesday, we're continuing our derivatives toolkit series with a focus on debt hedges. And on Thursday, we'll have more ESG reporting content for you. So that you never miss any of this content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for a newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.